Welcome to Zip Code Zero. Today's guest is Ryan Grimm, author of the new book, The Squad, AOC in the Hope of a Political Revolution. Ryan Grimm is The Intercept's Washington Bureau Chief and co-host of the show CounterPoints. He was previously the D.C. Bureau Chief for HuffPost, where he led a team that won the Pulitzer Prize. Ryan Grimm has been a staff reporter for Politico and the Washington City Paper, as well as a contributor to MSNBC and the Young Turks. In the new book, Ryan recounts the rise of progressive forces in the Democratic Party since the 2016 Sanders campaign, how those forces have helped reveal tension points within the left, including on identity versus class, establishment versus insurgent, and grassroots versus big money politics. We talk about all of those themes and more. If you enjoy the show, please remember to hit like and subscribe. Happy holidays to all and enjoy. All right. Well, just to kick things off, so there's a lot of different themes in the book, uh, themes of money and politics and class politics versus identity politics, activists versus establishment. But one thing I wanted to just kind of kick off with is something that you've written about outside this book as well, which is the left's tendency to kind of eat its own. You talked, you gave some examples through the book of in the Sanders presidential campaign his staff at one point, they had unionized and they wanted to go potentially on strike and make demands before, I think it was before Iowa. You talk about the Sunrise Movement. Um, They had sort of an internal racial reckoning and all sorts of internal turmoil that caused them to be distracted as the the Build Back Better bill, later the IRA, uh, was being formulated. So sort of pulled them from Having influence on that, you talked about women's rights organizations, some of the staff wanting to take the day off and process trauma after Dobbs was decided. So I'm wondering if you can just kind of start off with that and talking about what do you think causes that kind of dysfunction? And is that part of the general progressive wave that we've seen that helped bring the squad to the forefront? And where does it actually come from? I mean, some of it comes from, in general, uh, when momentum is slowing and when movements are in retreat, you start to see more infighting. Like, that's just a general kind of phenomenon. That wouldn't quite explain the Bernie Sanders situation in 2020 because he was kind of surging at that point. But in that case, it was, in some ways, it was a success story in the sense that you had this entire kind of push by a bunch of field organizers out in Iowa who were saying that they were going to, you know, go go on strike for more time off leading up to the Iowa caucuses, which is kind of a weird and contradictory argument because your job kind of ends when the caucuses are over anyway. So like what's (laughs) even if you won the right to have days off, you wouldn't have a job at that, you know, after Iowa in order to like enjoy those days off. But because the Sanders campaign had been unionized and therefore had like processes in place where those grievances could be aired, uh, they were aired among all of the workers and, and they kind of took a vote and decided that we're not going to do this. And the, the workers kind of felt like there had been a democratic process and so felt like they were heard. So some some of it uh, in these organizations comes from people just feeling like they are not they're not heard. They don't have a way um, 
you know, make their grievances hard, uh, make, to make their grievances hard in a way that they feel is, is, is kind of respectful enough. And so then it, it winds up kind of being channeled into more, into more destructive paths. Some of it is also just failures of leadership at organizations. The case I wrote about with the Dobbs decision was one of the rare ones where leadership kind of pushed back. You had this situation where like, you know, we know when Dobbs is coming down, they wanted, you know, grief counselors and, and you know, time to process and um, reduced workloads and, and other things to respond to the, the trauma of that, of that ruling coming. And the leadership pushed back and said, no. And, and that's rare. Like too often you've had, you know, managers who are, who operate out of fear of, of saying no that they will then be accused of some type of aggression against somebody and, and that they'll wind up then paying a price. So they, they allow kind of the, the institution to pay the price rather than, rather than absorbing it, the hit themselves. And in this case, like, no, like we are an organization that is here to defend the rights of tens of millions of people whose rights are like under direct assault right now. We need to, you know, come to work. And we need to fight harder on that day than we fight on any other day. So no, we're not going to do that. But in a lot of cases, it doesn't work out. Like in the in the case of Sunrise, like that you mentioned, I write about how the White House was, you know, it was like the peak moment of access for the for Sunrise with the White House. That 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 everything that all the power that they had built on the outside was now being exploited as the legislative process was underway. But the people who were supposed to be meeting with the White House instead were like meeting often internally trying to resolve whatever internal, you know, struggle sessions were underway. Where do you think that comes from? Uh, I mean, so like I said earlier, like some of it comes from just people feeling like crap, like people feeling like there's no point in anything, that there's no hope, that that the the ability to collectively create institutions that can fight and win change is gone or never was there. And so the, the institutions need to be upended from the inside and reformed or destroyed. And then re and then on the ashes of that, you'll build, build something better. Like I think, so some of it comes from like just deep pessimism and deep, deep, deep fear. But it's not something that we've seen in years past, right? Part of what I was wondering was well, you saw it in the, if you, you saw it a lot in the seventies, um, which you could argue is a something of you know time doesn't never never repeats itself. But sixties were a real surging time for left movements, and the seventies were a period of retrenchment, and that's when you you saw the advent of of what uh, they called in feminist circles trashing which is the same thing as cancel canceling like that's it's the same phenomenon pile on, you know giant giant pile on and the use and deployment of, of fancy words uh, to you know to browbeat people and discipline them and within within retrenching movements yeah part of what i was wondering was if it was connected to this rise in identity politics, especially in Sunrise, specifically, you had talked about that there were people who were arguing that the organization needed to root out white supremacy at the top of the organization, uh, which I think had been 
led at that point by a woman of color. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I know at the beginning of the book, you talk about the, um, the 20, I think it was the 2020 Democratic presidential primaries, right? It wasn't, or no, I'm sorry, it was 2016. But so you were talking about the Clinton campaign's desire to sort of neutralize the Sanders campaign, which was really rising up on a progressive class-based platform. And she decides at one point, or her campaign decides, to focus on issues of identity over class. They start accusing the Sanders campaign of being racist and misogynist, not outright accusing him, but accusing his supporters, uh, derisively calling them Bernie bros. And you say at one point, the Clinton campaign's deft deployment of identity politics to detonate the Sanders campaign set off a chain reaction that will blow the lid off the Democratic coalition for years to come. Mm-hmm. Was this really the the beginning of that kind of weaponization of identity politics, which I would agree with you has reverberated in the the certainly the left straight through today you're always in trouble when you talk about beginnings because you can always trace it back just you know a week before and the year before that and year before that but this definitely i think was a huge moment in it that it it elevated it to the the very top of the priority and the conversation like this is a this is a presidential campaign and did it in a way that so many people understood to be cynical in real time that uh, it really colored how people saw those conversations in the future. And so people know once, once you start, once you start to believe that your opponents are cynically weaponizing something, you then are very comfortable cynically weaponizing it in response. Um, and so, it, it also then hurt kind of the ability of the issues to be taken on their own and to be taken seriously. Because when you, when you weaponize something and you turn it into a cynical product, it's, then it's impossible to get people seriously to get behind a coalition to take it seriously. So that, that, it, that decision, I think, did um, hypercharge a, a trend that was, I think, already underway. Do you think educational polarization has played any part of that? This idea that the left, since the year 2000 at least, has become um, sort of the managerial class, the college-educated class. They go in to fill the the you know the rank and file, of the party structures, the DNC, the nonprofits, um, the different advocacy organizations, and there's become this real divide, not just in the United States and the Western world of the left parties being sort of the more educated parties. And you start to see this sort of cultural divide between the the left parties and the right parties to the point where the working class is becoming more aligned with, you know, the Republican Party in this country. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you think, was that woven into the Sanders sort of identity politics dynamics? Uh, yeah, I think. I think so. The, the Democrats are a party that always, the one through line, well, you know, it's a complicated party history, but a through line is standing up for the underdog, the little guy. And so, yeah, if you're, if you're going to polarize around education and some of your 
coalition is going to be materially more well off than uh, you know what you understand to be the little guy, then sometimes people need other other costumes to put on so that they can still play the role of of the little guy. So in that sense, you could see I think you could see it. Plus, the language itself becomes um, a signifier of kind of in group status. And in order to learn that language, you need to attend the institutions that are so conversant in it. So I think you're right. I think you, I think you don't get it without the education polarization. Yeah. So you also talked a lot about the impact of money in politics post-Citizens United. And I know you've talked in a lot of interviews for this book about APAC and Democratic Majority for Israel and a few other groups can you talk about the impact that they've had on democratic polity democratic party politics in the last few years and the impact that they're having on them right now the most vivid impact well i mean the most obvious impact would be turning um potential members of congress into non members of congress like you would have in Congress now, if not for APACs or, or DMFIs spending against them, you, Nina Turner would be a member of Congress. Nita Alam, I think, wins, you know, would have won her race, a progressive woman running in North Carolina. Donna Edwards, a progressive woman running in a suburban, a suburban D.C. In, in Maryland, uh, would have won. You, there are probably a handful of others you know, that win without you know, that amount of spending. And then across the board for the most part you had candidates you know moderating their positions when it came when it came to Israel Palestine to be sure but also just being a little quieter about some of their bernie adjacent politics like in 2018 it, every challenger was out there was competing to be the most bernie you know type of candidate because that they felt like that was the path toward getting small donors and toward getting the kind of infrastructure of left groups that would put together, you know, fundraisers and and maybe even an independent expenditure on the, on their behalf, and and it would be a signal to voters like I'm the I'm the most progressive candidate in the race, you know, vote for me. By 2022, that putting your hand up and saying I'm the most I'm going to be a member of the squad, I'm I I, I supported Bernie. I'm going to be a Bernie-like member of Congress. That was attracting the attention of DMFI and APAC before you said anything about Israel. There's a really interesting uh, about uh, about John Fetterman in the uh, Jewish Insider, which co covered all of these primaries very closely, which leads off by saying, you know, John Fetterman has been heavily associated with the squad and and with Bernie Sanders, which has led a lot of people in the pro-Israel community to worry that he shares their politics on on israel palestine uh in fact in an interview with jewish insider he said nothing could be further from the truth but so th you know that that showed you a bunch of different things at once but one of the things it showed is that just the idea that you were aligned with sanders and the squad was enough to raise extreme suspicions among apac and democratic majority for israel that you were also then going to be supportive of palestinian rights and so therefore needed to be targeted um so one response to that was, well, we'll just put out a statement that says, I, I stand with Israel. Um, but the other was that, you know, do we really need to brag about how we previously said we were supportive of the Green New Deal and Medicare for All? Like, 
you know, people get it. Like, let's let's be a little quieter about that. And that has a, you know, a, that has an effect on the the politics of the party then. Yeah, so that's what I was going to ask about. So APAC, DMFI, in a sense, they're influencing the party, not just on foreign policy, mm-hmm. but on domestic policy as well. And so I was wondering, do, do you get a sense outside of the squad and outside of the hardcore progressives that this bothers anyone that for someone like Nancy Pelosi, who's obviously very establishment and one of the biggest fundraisers in the party, but she's also been, you know, a liberal Democrat for most of her life and argue, um, you know, one of the most liberal leaders that we've had at least since the great society. Do you think, I mean, does this bother any of them that it's impacting their domestic policy as well as their foreign policy? I think not really. You know, you see Mark Pocan, for instance, former chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, being extremely outspoken about the the negative role APAC's playing in Democratic primaries. But in general, the incentives are pretty lined up that that Pelosi is herself hostile to... She's, she's the most liberal speaker we've had, but she's also hostile to um, the kind of rhetoric that comes from the Bernie side. Like, she doesn't... She's not here for Medicare for all. She's not here for the Green New Deal. She, you know, she thought, as I write about in the book, she thought abolish ICE came from the Russians. You know, defund the police, I'm sure she has very strong opinions of, about. So, and, and certainly when it comes to, like, the more uh, aggressive um, material stuff beyond Medicare for all, she, she thinks it goes too far. So, in a lot of ways, the incentives are, are, are lined up. And that's, a, that's true also for the donors to Democratic Majority for Israel and, and APAC, that these are, you're not giving a million dollar check to, a, to an APAC super PAC without having lots of money to be able to spend. And you didn't get lots of money without uh, having an interest in keeping the kind of current, you know, policy structures in place that benefit people that are in the 1%. So, so it, it lines up. And just an aside on the abolish ice Russia thing, so that it, that kind of stood out to me in the book when you had mentioned Pelosi said to someone that she thought it was the Russians who had injected that phrase into the body politic. It, it, I know you can't read her mind, but is your sense that Pelosi and or Democratic leadership actually believe that the Russians are interfering in this way? I wasn't sure if she was just saying that because it's has a lot of legs politically and sends a signal to... Democratic voters don't go with this, you know, that as a scare tactic, which can be very influential. But it, does she actually think the Russians are putting phrases like abolish ICE into the political conversation? I think she does. I think that people would be surprised how little daylight there is between kind of the private views of somebody like Pelosi and an, and an average but less much less informed kind of msnbc junkie like they're there it's actually you know she she obviously knows a lot more she gets intelligence briefings she's living this stuff rather than watching it on tv but but yeah i think i think she believes it circling back to apac i assume that they are pretty professional in how they get donations and handle things and stuff like that but could you not make an argument that this is foreign interference in U.S. elections? I mean, this is 
a lobby that is it's for another country. It's heavily aligned with the Likud party in Israel. Uh, again, I, I I would doubt that they would be so sloppy as to be getting direct emails from Benjamin Netanyahu on what to do. But it otherwise feels like, you know, if there was an equivalent of another country, say a Russian lobby, I think people would be pretty quick to accuse them of foreign interference in a very legal way. I don't right. I don't see anything illegal about it. The key, but, right. So the key thing is, on the one hand, the money is American in the sense that, um, like you said, they're very careful. Like they're not going to take money from Israelis who don't have American citizenship, which which you can't like you can't you can't if you're a foreigner, you can't, you know, spend you're not supposed to spend in elections. Now, they're, they're actually, you know, so there are some foreign donors who've given to like major Democratic organizations and Republican ones that then go and do nonprofit work that then has effects on elections. It's controversial stuff, but um, the answer, that's the main reason why they don't get busted on that front. However, one of the things I reported in the book, which to me is fascinating and could be looked at more closely, uh, Mark Melman, the, the, he, the founder of um, Democratic Majority for Israel and an advisor to APAC, you know, told me that one of the reasons that he fights so hard against the squad and Bernie over here in the United States is that it makes it harder to accomplish what is his primary mission, which is to, which is to defeat Likud in Israel. Like he's, he's an anti-Likud guy. He's a good liberal, wants to throw Netanyahu out of power. And he is a consultant, or it has been, I don't know if he is like to this day, but he may still be, to Yair Lapid, you know, who was the head of the Yeshatid party, who w- became prime minister actually for six months, uh, a six month stretch, in I think 2022 or 2021 or 2022. And he said that Netanyahu uses the American left and critics like AOC or Rashida Tlaib or Bernie to say, look, look how under siege Israel is. Everybody hates us. We're being isolated. You need to stand behind Likud and, and the Israeli right because we're the ones that are going to fight back against this. So he's set aside his analysis. He's saying that his work in the United States is for the benefit of Yeshatid, the his his like client in Israel. So that does seem to me a case where you could make a plausible argument. Well then okay, you're you're working on behalf of Yair Lapid here in in these elections because Yair Lapid has a direct interest in seeing the left beaten, so there's no Israeli critics, and therefore then and then he can go and criticize Netanyahu and be and be taken more seriously in in Israel. In the book, Yair Lapid even calls Steny Hoyer amid the Iron Dome vote. Like the reason they had that Iron Dome vote that became this kind of flashpoint um, was because Yair Lapid, who was the foreign minister, called Steny Hoyer and and demanded it. So you can imagine why people from the outside would be like, wait a minute, don't you have to register here? Uh, don't you have to register as a foreign agent in, this, in these cases? And I think one answer is like there's an exception. It's not le- an illegal exception, but there's kind of a cultural exception to the question of Israel. It's like, how dare you? Are you suggesting that Israel is a foreign country? <laughs> like, um, I think it is. Isn't it? I think technically it is, right? Uh, so yeah, that it's a really interesting question, but I think 
who who on earth in our political system is in Department of Justice or wherever else is going to like take that up? You imagine? Yeah, you imagine? That's a good point. You imagine trying to put that on a on a Zoom schedule inside the DOJ? Probably would not go well. No. no. I was trying to do the math on a lot of the figures that you reported in the book about the the money that. APAC and DMFI spent on going up against the squad members in 2018, which is probably not that much. 2020 was a bit more in 2022, which was a lot. 2024, I'm sure you've seen recently they're pledging, I think APAC alone pledging upwards of $100 million, which seems to far outweigh what they had spent previously against a relatively low number uh, elected officials. And I know that the numbers in the squad are kind of wishy-washy. There's the core four and then, you know, Jamal Bowman, who APAC seems to really have it out for. But does that, is your sense just from, I know you talk to them and have a sense of what they're, or may have a sense of what they're thinking. Is that scaring anyone? I mean, it feels like that would. They're definitely scared. At some point it becomes marginal, like the amount of money. Cause I think you count everything. You could. You're easily at forty million plus in in 2022, and so the difference the difference between forty million and a hundred million is it's a lot. But like, if you're facing forty million, you're already facing like it's just absolute avalanche of of money, and so it's o- it's only marginally more difficult in some ways to beat a hundred million than to beat forty million. The hundred million is uh, actually dicey when it comes to the sourcing. If you, the original article I think it was in Slate uh, said that uh, informed observers, you know, thought there there could be uh, they could spend up to a hundred million dollars, which I think is plausible. And if you, you know, they'd have to spend, you know, if you know twenty, you know, if they pick twenty races and spend five million in each race, like you're at a hundred million dollars, and they and there's certainly 20, 20 races I could imagine them spending in but no that 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 money has not that that has not been confirmed we haven't seen that but it's certainly plausible given that they spent nearly half that uh, the cycle before and that's before october 7th and before this war Uh, and so yes the answer is that they are very much paying attention i mean they were already paying very close attention now that now they're expecting you know this wave of money so um you know there there are organized efforts among Justice Democrats and and the squad and and the constellation of kind of allied groups to figure out how they can fend this off. And are they, do do you know if they're being strategic about who they're going against? Because my assumption would be that AOC, for example, seems to have a pretty tight lock on her Mm -hmm. district, whereas someone like Jamal Bowman straddles both the Bronx and Westchester County, which is a, a bit more Jewish than the Bronx. And so it feels like it would have but also there, a little more you know, fertile ground. And also there's going to be redistricting. So if they can, and that's going to be a fight between, you know, his opponents um, and his allies, you could, you could see that race decided based on how the lines are drawn one way or the other. Uh, yes, but they're going after Cory Bush. You know, so it looks like Wesley Bell was persuaded one way or another to drop his Senate run and run for Congress instead against her. He's a fairly progressive guy. And so, and well, you know, a known, known quantity in, in St. Louis. So that's a really tough race for her. Been those reports from two different people in Michigan that they were offered $20 million to drop out of races to run against Rashida Tlaib and both said no. 
I think it's going to be a little bit of a challenge for them to find, for them to beat Rashida. Because in order to beat her, they'd have to say a lot of things that are super unpopular in her district. Um, they almost beat Ilhan Omar in 2022. She held on by like four points. She has two opponents now, so unless they coalesce behind one, and now that she, and she's, she got caught off guard, she's paying much closer attention in 2024. I think Presley doesn't have a race. Summer Lee, you know, they're going to they're gonna come for Summer Lee in Pittsburgh uh, really hard. Uh, it be interesting to see if they try to come after Greg Kassar down in Austin. It doesn't look like they will. And then you've got other candidates that they've kind of, uh, other mem- incumbents who they've kind of said things about. And you're wondering, like, are they going to expand it to this? Like Hank Johnson, I think, in Georgia, fairly rank-and-file member. Um, Bonnie Watson Coleman, a rank-and-file Democrat in New Jersey, who, you know, they've been somewhat critical of Israel recently and you've seen DMFI make statements about them. It'd be very interesting to see if they went so far as to come after kind of rank and file Democrats who were critical of Israel. We'll see. Like, but if you have that kind of money, you can, it becomes easier to just take a shot at it. Yeah. And just, I think one more question about APAC and it's similar to a previous question, but we talked about APAC kind of moving the party to the right on domestic issues as well as foreign policy. But you also talk about in the book that APAC had instances where it would jump into a Democratic primary to get its preferred candidate, but then either not participate participate in the general election altogether or potentially support the Republican candidate. And I, I would assume this would be something that would bother Democratic Party leadership that it you know, in some examples, it's just putting in a more centrist sort of Israel hawk who's a Democrat. But in some cases, it's taking out the Democrat and putting in a Republican. Yeah. I mean, are there any phone calls between Biden or Jeffries or Schumer, anyone in APAC weighing in on this? Not that I've heard of, but you're right that that that's crossing a new line. Uh, and Summer Lee was the kind of funniest example because the entire they, they spent millions trying to a beat Summer Lee in a Democratic primary in Pittsburgh. And their whole argument was that Summer Lee was not a, a good enough Democrat. They're they questioning her, her Democratic bona fides. Like, she's been critical of Biden in the past. You know, she ran with the DSA in 2018. She'd since abandoned, you know, her, her allegiance with them. But yeah, so she's, she's not a good Democrat. So she wins the primary. And then in the general... Um, they spent money for the Republican trying trying to beat her in the general. I was like, wait a minute, you just spent the last several months telling us that your problem with her was that she wasn't a good enough Democrat. Um, and now you're going to try to elect the Republican against her. I mean, not that anybody took, took their like, um, their like passion for the integrity of the democratic brand seriously to begin with, since they endorsed like 110 Republicans who, voted to nullify the election like so it's not exactly like they're a big democratic uh partisan player to begin with but yeah no i don't i'm not aware of any phone calls but i think if they did that at a at more scale they would hear about it but yeah the other funny funny one was elaine loria is this she won a seat in 2018 flipped the republican seat in, in kind of norfolk virginia and was one of the most outspoken like defenders of Israel. um in her time in Congress, constantly, you know, going after the squad or Rashida, Rashida or Ilhan, 
sponsoring resolutions to condemn them or writing letters to the editor or going on CNN and, you know, bashing them. It was her, her main thing. And then she had a very tight race in 2022 and APAC did not lift a finger for her other beyond just endorsing her. Didn't spend a dime um, and she lost. And so it did, you did see a lot of Democrats noticing that and being like, well, I don't want to be on their bad side, but apparently there's not a whole lot of upside in being on their good side. So, you know, one of the other themes in the book, obviously, it's the title is The Squad, is about the, the rise of the squad and this energy from that activist base that was connected to the Sanders campaign and a few other movements. The the kind of youth Gen Z vote right now is one of the most liberal generations we've ever seen on paper. And as I'm sure you know, there's this kind of false assumption that the youth is always liberal, but it isn't historically the case. I think you know, Bush v. Gore, I think the youth vote went split down evenly. They were pro-Reagan. So we have, you know, if you're a progressive and hoping for a better future, this seems to be very, very good news. But on the other hand, we've seen a lot of dysfunction within the youth. We talked about the kind of left eating its own institutionally among these organizations. And there also seems to be this kind of alienation from at least the Biden administration, which I think had preceded Israel-Gaza, that sort of drop off on support for the Biden administration. So I'm just wondering your thoughts on what do you see in the next couple of years with, you know, Gen Z starting to get to that age where you vote more, which I guess is probably into your 30s and, and that sort of thing. It, does this pretend a, a leftward shift for the Democratic Party more than we've already seen? Or is that it definitely shows that the structures are in place for a leftward shift. And a lot of that, I think, is material in the way in the way that material and cultural, um, like not not only does the Republican Party seem like against the material interests of a of a a an entire cohort that is having a hard, much harder time getting ahead by you know paying off student loans and owning a house and you know doing just the basics of being able to create a start a family and like live a decent life. At the same time, they see them as a bunch of bigots. You know, they're even hostile to marriage equality. It seems like at some point at some level, and so. The youth voters? No, the Republicans. The youth voters. Oh, they're, I'm sorry. Yeah, the yeah. youth voter, youth voters look at Republicans and they're like, well, these people are like ridiculous. Like, you know. But uh, we'll, you know, we'll see how this the Gaza um, campaign that that Israel is waging um, plays into that. Since you asked about, you know, a couple years down the road, I think a, a lot remains to be seen. Like, if if Trump wins and brings in some you know, reactionary dystopia, then, then, then you'll see a, ma a massive swing, you know, back toward Democrats. Well, so, but, you know, like, like because the structures are already there for it, uh, but we'll see it, you know, a little, lots still up for grabs. You know, Joe Biden has managed to kind of squander a historic amount of goodwill. How do you think he's done that? On, I, on I, mean, Israel? I think so, some of it's Israel. Some of it, I think, is bad luck around the way that the inflation played. And um, and I think he can recover from um, if the economy continues to produce wage growth with inflation staying low and unemployment staying under 4%. I think he would eventually get rewarded for that. Um, but, but nobody's going to want to reward him 
when A, he's doing what he's doing with Israel, and B, he looks like he's 150 years old. Like, I think that's a real thing. Like, I, and he can't do anything about that except step aside. And it'd be interesting to see how a generic Democrat, like a J.B. Pritzker or somebody, you know, would, would be received instead. Yeah, another billionaire right. coming in to, to rescue the Democratic yeah. Party. Do yeah. you think the, the Gaza war will, will impact Biden in the election? I mean, on the one hand, the, the parallels to LBJ feel pretty strong mm-hmm. with, I mean, his accomplishments, Biden's accomplishments legislatively. And then you talk in the book about, you know, Elizabeth Warren's mantra that personnel is policy. And he's done a great job, arguably, with Lena Khan and a lot of the antitrust work, which has been really successful lately, you know, just stacking the NLRB, obviously, and then the IRA, the infrastructure bill, you know, his initial COVID bill. So just arguably one of the most accomplished uh, Democrats of the the post-60s period, which I guess we've only had three Democrats, discluding him since. But on the other hand, I mean, it's just a disaster on foreign policy, specifically Israel and Gaza. And it's hard to think this is all just going to be gone by Q1 or Q2 next year. I mean, right, if, even if Israel right. stops the slaughter. It could be a lot worse. Like, right. The conditions could continue to just get worse. Like The, the big problem comes in the fact that the people who are most likely to um, be outraged about this are the ones who are following, who follow politics the closest, who po- follow global affairs closest. Those people are the ones that, you know, then kind of transmit vibes and, and political information in their social circles. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, my cousin who's the social, who's the junkie is sharing this. And, and so people then kind of absorb, absorb that you know, through so even if they're if even if they only add up to a million or two people, you know they influence tens of millions of people in a in a kind of nebulous way. So it and it, and it and it, and I think it also makes it harder for other people to try trumpet like some of his other achievements because it's very hard for people to say um, to celebrate like wage gains on while on the other hand there's a genocide like that's it's just a. It's just a very difficult thing for so many people to get past. Going back to the the squad, one of the things that you talked about specifically with AOC was this kind of tension between between being the outsider who's pushing and the insider who's kind of following the rules and doing procedural votes that might annoy the base and things like that. Do you think there's a risk, given how young a lot of them are, especially AOC, that the longer you stay in office, the more kind of compromised you become and less in touch with what the base is pushing on. I think that's that's a risk for everybody, including journalists and politicians and everybody. And I think that they're probably aware of that and um you know, constantly, you know, trying to you know, you ha- you have to fight to you know, remind yourself of where you came from and who you represent. And I think they, they try to do that. It's, you know, it's difficult when you're in, the, when you be, when you start moving in these rarefied circles constantly. But, um, so yeah, I think that, I think that's a real thing. Is there a chance that AOC could be elected statewide 
to a Senate seat in New York? Do you think I, she I, has that kind of support upstate? I think I think she could. And also, like our system is so partisan that if she can just win the nomination, um, then she's going to win the general. Um, you know, even people upstate who don't like her would probably prefer her um, to a Republican. Uh, and, and Bernie, I think, showed that if you can push past some of the misogyny or the racism, that his agenda can really be successful with working class people. But, she, you know, he was always more popular upstate than she was, even though their politics were like identical. And so but so it shows that there's a path, but that, you know, it's it's laden with difficulties. One other interesting thing I thought about the the squad is especially it was um, talked about in your book was, again, going back to the beginning of that Sanders versus Clinton class versus identity, the squad seemed to marry the two, that they could talk about identity politics, about racial and gender politics, while also advocating for class-based issues. And they all kind of came from the Sanders wing of the party. But you had also talked about, and we had talked about a little bit earlier, of the um, downfalls of overly woke politics, the the way that certain voters are turned off by overstressing identity and that kind of almost like woke, woke language um, that becomes very insular and almost a signal of a, a kind of class on its own. And that connects to the educational polarization. And so I wonder, is there a chance that the squad, I don't know, kind of sinks on its own because of it's over, it, it sort of loses touch with that working class element because it falls too much into the the woke, you know, what Carvel called the fac- Harvard faculty lounge language where they're, they're, they're more conversant with university officials than they are with working class voters in Vermont or Texas or West Virginia. I think that's always a risk, but I also think that these are politicians and they're going to follow, like, they're not the only, you know, we're not the only ones um, who are aware of this phenomenon. And I think that you're seeing some of that element of the party in in retreat a little bit in the last couple of years. And, you know, to the extent that some of that language is useful to advancing their, their broader kind of left agenda, they're going to embrace it. The second that it gets in the way of it, I, they're not going to embrace it for the sake of just embracing it. And so, you know, I think that the more talented among them are going to be able to kind of uh, re- reinvent the language that's needed to do what I think really is their their end goal, which is building a genuine kind of multiracial working class, you know, movements, coalition that it's capable of taking on big money. I, I don't think that, I think some institutions and some activists, you know, could get dragged down to the bottom of the sea by that stuff. But, I, but in general, I think politicians won't um, because they're just, in, politicians just in general are more deft at kind of riding, riding waves rather, rather than being kind of s- smashed by them. Well, let's hope so. Ryan, thank you for, for joining the program. Uh, I know you've got a very busy schedule, probably a very busy day, um, but really appreciate it. Appreciate the book. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Ryan. Take care.